Welcome to a special series on the Acquisition Talk podcast that gives you an audiobook tour of my research project titled Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. to I'm Eric Lofgren of the Baroni Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. You can find this book for free and over 1,300 blog posts on my website, acquisitiontalk.com. If you are new to the Program to Fail series, I recommend you start with the introductory episode and then make your way from Chapter 1 through this final chapter, Chapter 10, on the culture of defense acquisition. This will be the final episode of Acquisition Talk, at least for now, as I've taken a job on Capitol Hill which requires me to put this work on hiatus. But I invite you to listen to the archive of over 160 episodes where I talk with leading experts in defense acquisition, and I hope to one day return to create more on this podcast. Major programs undertaken by the Department of Defense require the coordination of large groups. In 1958, three Air Force ballistic missile programs involved more than 70,000 employees across 200 major subcontractors, who transacted with a further 200,000 parts suppliers. Large group sizes are important for complex economic activity because they allow for dramatic specialization of labor, which, if harnessed, can rapidly improve productivity. Most industrial air production requiring large groups did not at the same time require intimate coordination. Labor specialized in routine activities needing only brief communication, such as handing piece parts down an assembly line. While specialization of the manufacturing process improved productivity, knowledge was not necessarily specialized. The weight of labor did not contribute to product design, plant layout, process improvement, and other intangible assets. In other words, most labor did not incur opportunity costs. Many of their activities were programmed from the top as though they were pieces of capital. By contrast, large weapon systems developments required intimate coordination of large groups. The development of the Polaris missile, a single subsystem of the fleet ballistic missile nuclear submarine, involved more than 10,000 employees at major subcontractors, in addition to several hundred in the government project office. Most participants not only performed specialized activities, but also had local knowledge beneficial to the program. They contributed creative energy to solving myriad technical problems across a vast number of components. As a result, participants made genuine choices that weighed opportunity costs. The kind of large group coordination needed to scale new concepts and technologies is far more difficult and far more rewarding than coordination of reproducible goods by known methods. It requires strong in-house technical capabilities, as well as an organizational culture that engenders trust. Cultural factors remain a major prerequisite to harnessing an innovative environment. In this final episode of Programmed to Fail, we explore the true importance of reforming the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process in the Department of Defense. Some may say that only a poor craftsman blames his tools, that it is deficiencies in the workforce rather than problems of the acquisition and budgeting systems that are holding weapons innovation back. But certainly, it is not the lack of quality and drive in the people that has held North Korea back relative to their neighbors in South Korea, or that has stymied the growth of nations in the former Soviet Union. 
It was the ideologies of the political economy thrust upon the people that so devastated their culture. The PBBE is similarly a radical break from American values and traditions that has left good people burdened by a bad process. No longer can the defense acquisition workforce take joy in their hefty responsibility. No longer can the workforce see themselves in their work. They are tossed about in a system too large for them to affect, and the workforce is expected to be like a caretaker driving a train down preset tracks rather than an explorer, a creator, and a builder with intrinsic value. Fulfilling individual desires to contribute to national security will more rapidly accelerate our common security than any top-down optimization and 30-year life cycle plan. The problem is how large groups of people can be coordinated to achieve an end that is beyond the comprehension of any small group or plan. That is what we will explore in this final chapter of Programmed to Fail. As group sizes increase and economic activity becomes more complex, more of the knowledge about alternative action sets are spread across the participants. No one person can comprehend but a small part of the total knowledge related to science and technology, let alone operational environments. The more advanced economic activity becomes, the more important it is that local knowledge is effectively coordinated throughout the system. The coordination, in one way or another, introduces exchanges mediated by contracts. Tightly specified contracts can be drawn up where knowledge is general and uncertainty is minimal. In these cases, incentives provide all the assurance the buyer needs. In the Department of Defense, contractor proposals are often based on detailed specifications which outline all major activities. The contract assures that both parties will live up to their end because all relevant incentives have been listed and deemed compatible. The principal does not need to trust the agent. It is in the agent's self-interest to deliver the product at the agreed price or face consequences from breach of contract. Contracts based on incentive compatibility can only provide assurance to both sides in a limited range of situations. Only with relatively complete and accurate knowledge of the product design, factors of production, and other aspects can the contract outline all contingencies. If one party were to gain asymmetric knowledge, it exposes the other side to opportunism. There are two general cases where the principle is unprotected from the opportunism of the agent. Cases where mutually beneficial exchange is likely foregone because of the lack of assurance provided by incentive compatibility. First, where the principal cannot effectively monitor the effort of the agent. For example, when an employee performs routine work, the employer may do a study of how many operations can be done in a given unit of time and tie the employee's pay to the piece rate. The principal monitors the agent's input and output directly tying it to a benchmark measure. However, when the agent's performance requires unobservable aspects, such as specialized knowledge related to an esoteric piece of engineering, then the principal cannot monitor the agent's performance. The agent may drive up billable hours by shirking on the job, or unfairly build up his own capital stock at the expense of the principal. 
as local knowledge grows, the more opportunities for mutually beneficial exchange may be foregone due to the problem of monitoring. Second, incentive compatibility cannot be assured when contracts are incomplete. For example, in a development contract, there is often great uncertainty as to the final product design. The prevalence of engineering change orders in defense contracts is evidence of their incomplete nature. In these cases, the principal is exposed to the opportunism of the agent. Once the principal has committed to a strategy, the agent may overprice change orders by holding the project hostage. As the exchange becomes increasingly complex, not all contingencies can be foreseen and stipulated in the contract. Even though the principal wants to make the best use of new information learned by the agent, there is no incentive constraining the agent to do the right thing. Instead, the agent may take advantage of the principal. As a result, instances of mutually beneficial exchange through necessarily incomplete contracts are likely foregone. Management systems in the Department of Defense were designed to limit opportunism rather than harness local information. The policies assume that the damage done from willful abuse of government funds outweighs the dramatic increase in productivity that can be activated by local knowledge. The effect is to stimulate a bureaucratic culture mired in checking and rechecking decisions. This leads to substantial transaction costs. In 1969, Comptroller Elmer Statz said that, quote, Estimates as to documentation costs range from 20 to over 50% of development costs, but reliable information is not available, end quote. Professor Robert Judson reported in 1975, quote, If you want to calculate the cost of doing business the way that we do it, and this is conservative estimate, we spend an amount equal to 50% of the total dollars involved. So, if the dollars involved are a trillion dollars, and we are spending $500 billion on trying to achieve various forms of accountability, we are not getting very much for that expenditure." End quote. While technological advances correspond with the deepening of the specialization of labor, benefits can only accrue to society when the local knowledge can be coordinated through exchanges. However, local knowledge also provides agents with golden opportunities to exploit the principle because the incentives written into the contract cannot restrain the unobserved opportunism of the agent. If the principal cannot trust the agent to restrain himself from acting on opportunism, then a wide range of welfare-enhancing exchanges will incur high transaction costs or will never get realized at all. This is true of industrial contracts as well as employment contracts. The inability to coordinate localized knowledge can cause organizations to miss out on dramatic productivity improvements. When advances in economic behavior require local knowledge, providing discretion to those individuals with the most knowledge is paramount. As Frederick Scherer testified, quote, Given the kinds of technical problems characterizing modern-day weapons development, inflexibility of contractual instruments is incompatible with economy, end quote. Unlike contracts which limit discretion by fully defining the incentives, relational contracts are loose and vague. Relational contracts provide flexibility to adapt to unpredictable situations through a lack of specificity. Not only is the principal provided discretion to redirect the agent when he learns something new, the agent is provided discretion to redirect the principal's resources based on his own, perhaps unarticulated, knowledge. 
If the principal can trust the agent not to exploit the opportunism recognized to pervade the contract, then a much wider range of exchanges are allowed to take place. The benefit is a substantial increase in productivity because more complex projects can be undertaken. Before scientific management was thoroughly applied to defense acquisition, research and development was carried out on a more relational basis. For example, in 1955, the entire specification of the F-4 development fit into two pages. Certainly, the Navy did not enter into the contract with McDonald Aircraft thinking it complete by any means. By contrast, in 1980, the C-17 specification consisted of 13,516 pages and over 35,000 pieces of art. There was a similar decline in relational contracting with the ranks of the Department of Defense. Discretion had been liberally extended throughout the in-house labs, bureaus, and technical services until their lead role in weapons acquisition was replaced with dedicated program offices. The DOD Directive 5000.1 outlined official policy related to the program offices, and in 1971, it was a scant seven pages with 14 external references. Less than a decade later, there were over 60 pages with 136 reference documents, totaling thousands of pages of policy. In both external contracts with industry and internal policy with the program offices, defense acquisition shifted from relational contracts to more detailed rules based on incentives. Admiral Hyman Rickover understood the power of relational contracts to accomplish ambitious programs. Within the government, Rickover corralled a great deal of authority to direct the Naval Nuclear Reactors Program as he saw fit. He extended that authority to his trusted subordinates. Rickover's technical director, Theodore Rockwell, recounted a scene which exemplifies the relational nature of his management. Rickover told his team, quote, The only thing I've done is to surround myself with people who are smarter than I am. I'm counting on you guys to keep me out of trouble. End quote. Rockwell remembered how, quote, with a few exceptions, we all knew we were not as smart as he was, but we did know more than he did about certain things, each of us in his own area, and he was not threatened by that situation. In fact, as he said, he was counting on it, and that was empowering, end quote. Rickover also extended relational contracts to industry participants. A quick phone call could initiate major undefinitized efforts. Contractors would get started on significant work at their own risk, trusting Rickover to come through with the funding. For example, Rickover asked Newport News Shipyard to develop the very first nuclear submarine. The reluctant dragon refused. And so in the middle of the meeting, Rickover called the manager of Electric Boat and asked if he would do it. The immediate response of yes steered the company towards leading an important new area of technology in which it had no experience. In return for what could be considered backroom dealings, Rickover expected a high degree of transparency from the contractors, just as he did from his subordinates. He wanted to stay informed about every meticulous detail, decide on major actions, and even make firm-specific decisions. For example, Rickover expected to review and approve shipyard managers on his program. In one case, Rickover refused a name and Newport News elected to go forward anyway. Rickover said that he would deal with them officially from then forward. In other words, he rescinded the relational contract. When Newport News decided to comply, Rickover rewarded them. 
he arranged for a team of their engineers to learn from Electric Boat, which had gained a technical advantage. As Rockwell recalled, quote, Electric Boat would certainly not have volunteered to jumpstart the new competitor in this way if Electric Boat had not had the same kind of full cooperation agreement with Rickover to which Newport News had objected, end quote. Rickover's nuclear program was built with a strong element of relational contracting. However productive relationships are at harnessing local knowledge, they inevitably create opportunities for agents to exploit principles. Relational contracts can only persist so long as there is trust between parties. Over the decades, Rickover began to lose trust in his contractors, fighting them interminably on pricing decisions. In his final years, he accused Electric Boat of outright fraud in their cost overrun claims on the Los Angeles-class submarine. The relational nature of advanced technology contracts opened up the government to opportunism by the contractor, even if it was only existing in Rickover's mind. Without the assurance provided by incentives, relational contracts only last so long as the parties trust each other. A major element in the extension of trust is demonstrated technical knowledge by the agent. If the principal knew the opportunity costs of all choices just as well as the agent, then the principal would not accrue any benefits to extending discretion. There would be no problem of local knowledge. However, major projects require so many interconnected processes that no one person or list of requirements can possibly specify all decisions. For example, Admiral Rickover integrated all the knowledge he possibly could into his own mind, requiring direct reports from over a hundred managers. He did not blindly trust his subordinates to manage the development of nuclear reactors. Despite his vast capacity to synthesize information, Rickover also understood that he could not personally solve every problem. To accomplish his goals, Rickover's top emphasis was not project work itself, but laying the foundations for trust. He personally interviewed every recruit, amounting to tens of thousands of interviews, and ensured their technical excellence with rigorous in-house training. Authority was delegated to those deemed to have the most merit. Rickover did not follow the general practice of putting military officers ahead of civilians or seniority ahead of technical skill, as he explained. Quote, who worked for whom depended entirely on his competence. I have had civilians working for officers, officers working for civilians, higher ranking officers working for officers junior to them. I assign people to jobs based on their competence, not their rank. The nuclear power plant doesn't know whether a man who designed it is a civilian or an officer, end quote. An organizational reliance on technical acumen did not figure highly for routine industrial operations. Though Frederick Winslow Taylor himself was an engineer who contributed to innovations, his recommended techniques, such as time-motion studies, raised the status of financial and statistical acumen. With mass production, future decisions looked very much like past decisions. Routinized activities lent themselves to data collection and optimization. When working on novel processes at the frontier, technical acumen retakes precedence. Rickover's organization, for example, sought to build the first nuclear reactor to produce useful energy and integrate it onto a submarine. There could be no reference to benchmarks. The information required to build the nuclear navy existed nowhere. It had to be worked out in real time, thoroughly documented, and only then routinized according to the strictest standards. 
As Rickover explained about managing the Naval Reactor Program, quote, I daily face difficult scientific and engineering problems, the resolution of which requires melding together experience, intuition, judgment, and experimental testing, end quote. Gaining such skills took many years of on-the-job training. Yet the military services expected their officers to come from operational user perspective to lead technical developments. Rickover complained, quote, How can a man possibly take charge of a complex technical matter, say a man who's been a captain of a ship and has no requisite scientific and engineering training and experience? Why, it is an absurdity on the face of it, and this is where much of our difficulty starts, end quote. Without the necessary experience, government program managers often relied on technical direction from the contractor, which was then reviewed by staff officers with no responsibility to get the job done. After two or three years, when the manager finally begins to learn something, he moves on to another assignment. For Rickover, such managers could not be considered professionals. Rickover said, quote, As long as a man is willing to accept dictation in a technical matter, he is not a professional person. End quote. He charged that on engineering matters, the Navy is not really a profession. David Packard agreed with the thrust of Rickover's arguments. Quote, to be brutally frank about the situation, the services need to be organized so that the development and production of new weapon systems is managed by people who are experts in that business. This is not the practice in the services. Instead, the weapons management job is performed under a system in which too much responsibility is given to officers whose special expertise is not development and procurement, end quote. The Department of Defense officials had long emphasized the central role of the program manager. In 1956, the Robertson Committee recommended that the authority and organizational standing of program managers be increased, along with their tours of duty. It asked for tours to lengthen from a little over two years to an average of five years. Similar recommendations came from the New London Conference in 1963, and in 1965, DOD Directive 5010.14 required program managers to be available for at least three-year tours. The pronouncements created little change. Nearly 20 years later, Congress legislated tours of four years for defense program managers. The investigational subcommittee later found that average tenures did not reach four years, or even move in that direction. It declined. Only 5% of program managers had four years' experience. The number for the Air Force was zero. The longest tour of duty was just over five years and the average less than two. The longest tour of duty was just over five years and the average less than two. The subcommittee concluded that the services have simply flouted the law. Extended tenure is a precondition to vesting authority within the program manager. Even if a program manager has received a formal technical education, that knowledge does not immediately translate to specialized military acquisition. Without staying on long enough to understand the particulars, a program manager could not effectively wield strong authority. In such cases, the program manager loses control of the acquisition cycle. Its role devolves to advocacy in controlling the rate of spending. David Packard saw cases where, quote, the program manager is often little more than an errand boy for all the service officers, both above him and around him in the organization, end quote. The relevance of the program manager degraded so much in the case of the F-111 that the program manager wasn't even invited to important meetings on his own program. Without extensive technical experience and a tenure long enough to apply it, 
vesting authority with the program manager would be misplaced. Extended tenure also addresses the problem of responsibility. The success or failure of a project cannot be attributed unless the program manager stays on board long enough to see the results. Often, defense programs are planned by personnel from the service staffs and the contractors. The program manager inherits the program and expects to depart for another assignment before the outcomes are realized. Each successive program manager feels no responsibility for the decisions made prior to him, and moreover, feels that he will not be accountable for his current decisions. As Rickover explained, quote, Before the results of the decisions are in, the manager will be moved and a new manager, equally unqualified technically, will take his place. Naturally, the new manager will feel no responsibility for prior decisions and actions. His primary ambition will be to keep the project moving in hopes that it will not fail during his own tour. Thus, responsibility cannot be fixed, and there is bound to be little continuity in the technical direction for most of the defense developments underway today. To remain inexpert by frequent emigration from one's job, to leave one's mistakes and one's past, to start out for a new life, this is what the short tour of duty does. One can be carefree forever. True responsibility for one's actions is not ever comprehended. Life becomes a series of disconnected events. End quote. Excessive rotation did not just affect the program manager position within the government. Rickover found that in industry, managers rarely stayed around for long. Every shipyard has seen at least one of its top three people rotate every six months over an 18-year period. During that time, the average shipyard saw 10 different commanders, 15 different planning officers, and 12 different production officers. Turnover within industry's rank was equally poor. The Navy reported how one major shipbuilder had personnel turnover at nearly 60% a year. Another hired 12,000 people to increase year-end employment by just 650. A third shipbuilder hired 8,000 people in a year and suffered a net loss in employment. By contrast, there is no doubt to anyone involved who was responsible in the Navy nuclear reactor program. Senator Scoop Jackson praised Rickover personally for winning the race to nuclear-powered submarines and civilian power stations. He assumed complete responsibility and did the job. That kind of responsibility, Rickover claimed, required 10 to 15 years of experience before rising to program manager. He expected the same dedication from subordinates. By his retirement, Rickover built an organization with tremendous in-house technical knowledge based on long tours of duty. Quote, an important factor in the technical accomplishments of the Naval Nuclear Propulsion Program has been the emphasis on continuity, experience, and technical expertise in personnel. The most senior 100 people have an average of about 15 years of experience, and the 20 division heads have an average of about 20 years of experience, having served in many technical areas including field positions, end quote. Rickover's emphasis on technical expertise and long tours of duty corresponded well with French military acquisition at the time. Armaments engineers in France received seven years of education in science and technology before a five-year hands-in-the-grease assignment in a production facility. Additional tours with higher levels of responsibility and operational experience were then required. After 10 to 15 years of experience, a person could become program manager for a small project. 25 years was common for complicated projects. The continuity of high-quality personnel built an institutional memory into the French acquisition system. 
Professional experience and lengthy tenures provide valuable signals to the principal that the agent can be trusted. Over the course of time, the agent demonstrates local knowledge and builds a reputation for excellence. Rickover said, quote, As long as a man is getting results, he should be given full authority to decide what work should or should not be done and where and by whom it should be done, end quote. Results, however, do not completely verify that the agent has not taken advantage of golden opportunities. At the technological frontier, signals of excellence and loyalty may not be apparent from outcomes due to the presence of uncertainty. The results may not be indicative of whether the agent acted in his estimation of the principal's best interests. A failed experiment is not, for example, evidence of the agent's opportunism. In order for relational contracts to reach their greatest benefit, the principal must believe that the agent would never consider acting on a golden opportunity. It suggests that the agent has signaled a particular set of moral beliefs to the principal. In addition to experience and tenure, an important aspect to the extension of relational contracts is a general adherence to the rules of conduct. The significance of personal moral codes has a long tradition in military units. Army War College historian Andrew Hill wrote how, quote, Militaries are societies unto themselves, and with their own sociology, history, values, and belief. Military culture is built on these principles of shared history and shared values, end quote. The Marines' motto, Semper Fi, for example, means always faithful. People readily accept cultural norms not because of prudence, but because they desire to be worthy of genuine esteem of their peers. Rickover explained the kind of moral beliefs that a contractual agent must have to engender trust. Rickover said, quote, I should like to commend you a liberal adaptation of the injunction contained in the Oath of Hippocrates that the professional man do nothing that will harm his client, end quote. Rickover's own actions as an agent to the interests of Congress and the public exemplified his point. Not only did he show tremendous technical progress at every stage, Rickover acted in good faith whenever possible. In one example, Rickover carried out his program for a million dollars less than budgeted. Quote, the only honorable thing to do with that money is to return it to the Treasury, and I have done so, end quote. The committee chairman was taken aback. Quote, that is unprecedented. I literally have never heard such a thing in all my years of government. End quote. Repeated exchanges like this engendered trust between Rickover and many congressmen, which stem more from their estimation of Rickover's moral values than the assurance provided by regulations and oversight. It is also important for the agent to be able to trust the principal. For example, a civil servant may expect that dedication and excellence will earn him rewards, such as a chance at the executive level. However, more often than not, these positions are filled by outsiders. Rickover said, quote, Consider the effect on morale of a career civil servant or military employee who watches men from industry come into policy-making positions for short periods of time and go back into industry after two or three years, sometimes less, end quote. Equally important to the agent is the belief that his own welfare will not be unfairly sacrificed by the principal who may rationalize such betrayal to be in the interest of the greater good. For example, an official approached Rickover to sequester scarce materials he had procured in order to develop the first nuclear submarine. It was touted to benefit the Air Force and the entire war effort in Korea during the early 1950s, though it came at the expense of the Navy nuclear program. Rickover fought back. Quote, you want me to take the statesman-like position, to rise above my parochial viewpoint, 
to consider the good of the nation as a whole, and perhaps the good of all humanity. Is that it? Well, I'm not going to do it. You're not in a position to judge just how urgent or important their need really is. Neither am I. What I do know is that I have been ordered by the President of the United States to have a ship ready to go by January 1955, and I intend to do my damnedest to make that happen. End quote. Even though Rickover had identified many sound principles for building an organizational culture and railed against both contractors and bureaucrats on their moral standing, even he violated the trust of his superiors and the public. In his final years, General Dynamics came out with evidence that Rickover had illegally accepted gifts. While most of the cases were trivial, the fact of the matter was that such violations justly tarnished his reputation. He falsely reasoned that the gifts being acceptable because of his sterling reputation, as well as all the good he had accomplished for the nation. We are humiliated when we are deceived, Adam Smith reasoned back in 1759, and the pain of this deception far outweighs the promise of benefiting from the continued relationship. For Adam Smith, the most important rules of conduct are the respect for life, property, and promises. They are like the rules of grammar and must never be violated even if it appears to achieve a greater good. After World War II, the United States had its most robust in-house technical staff, although it remained underemphasized compared to its European counterparts. Still, the Army Ballistic Missile Agency developed almost all of Redstone and Jupiter's major subsystems and components in-house during the 1950s. Even the Nike Ajax surface-to-air missile, which was outsourced due to its lack of in-house competence, the Army arsenal essentially acted as a subcontractor to Bell Labs of Western Electric. Similarly, the Navy China Lakes facility, despite being rolled back, continued to be the Navy's primary source of missile and rocket technology well into the 1970s. In both the Army and the Navy, the primary function of the in-house capabilities was to furnish engineering products to weapon systems. In-house efforts consumed about one-third of Army and Navy research and development funding. The Air Force, however, promised a different role for their in-house staff. The Air Force Research and Development Center only maintained enough technical competency to tackle specialized requirements. As the Air Force Research and Development Center Commander General Donald Putt put it in 1953, Our job is not to actually do the research and development job. For that, we rely primarily on industry, universities, and civilian research organizations. Our job is to tell these groups the problems the Air Force wants to solve and to program, finance, monitor, and evaluate the work necessary to solve them, end quote. For example, at the laboratory in Rome, New York, only 10% of the funding remained in-house. Of Rome's in-house effort, only 2% went to the actual research and development work, with 50% monitoring outside activities and the remainder supporting procurement programs. Over the 1950s, 85% of all Air Force research and development funding went to universities or industry. The balance funded about 40,000 Air Force personnel, less than 20% of which had any science or engineering experience. Trevor Gardner, head of R&D at Air Force headquarters, told Congress how, quote, the portion which we spend of our own money on our own laboratories is rather small, end quote. Over the course of the 1950s, the Army and Navy were pressed to outsource more R&D. In 1955, the Chief of Naval Operations directed the Libby Board in its investigation of bureau system adequacy. While it found deficiencies, it supported the continued role of strong bureaus and relegated special projects offices to exceptional circumstances. 
Yet the pressure to emulate the Air Force did not abate. Increased use of contractors became essentially an unwritten law, causing the arsenal and bureau systems to shrink significantly. General John Uncles, Chief of Army Research and Development, told Congress how the services had long been under pressure to whittle in-house organizations down to a certain minimum point. Quote, We don't know exactly where that point is, but 25% or 35% of our program we feel should be done within our own laboratories to enable us to have the people who understand what the rest of the world is doing. End quote. In 1962, Bureau of the Budget Director David E. Bell issued a report finding that, quote, there had been a serious trend toward eroding the competence of the government's research and development establishment, end quote. It concluded that the government employees need to be assigned to stimulating work, given authority to do the job, and have their salaries raised. The fear was that without in-house R&D, engineers would become desk engineers who merely reviewed contracts and accepted contractor technical direction. Engineers either lost touch with the technology or lost interest and left the government. Many others believed government could evaluate contracts without performing any core work itself. For them, the Manhattan Project demonstrated that the minimum point of government effort is 5% or lower. Industry consultant Helge Holst explained how the government should be a skillful user, not necessarily a skillful designer, developer, or producer. He elaborated the position for Congress in 1962. Holst said, quote, Let me see if I can make this almost ridiculously simple. Certainly when our wives use automobiles and start them up and drive very successfully to school and the grocery and everything else, they are performing a useful function. They have all their needs met without being able to design and build an automobile, and without, indeed, being able to maintain the automobile. End quote. Holst believed that increasing specialization of economic activity made it infeasible for the user to have technical understanding of what they buy. They just need to know if it worked. Yet for weapon systems, the government cannot rely on the collective wisdom of other purchasers. It is a single buyer. Moreover, government finances the contractor and is responsible for critical decisions before contracted work begins. The evaluation process in research and development is not limited to evaluation of fully developed test articles. Chet Holyfield, chairman of the Committee on Government Operations, fired back at Holst, quote, Now, how are we going to have that in-house capability not to create but make wise judgments as a sophisticated consumer, particularly when we are dealing in the future, when we are peering into the glass ball and trying to select systems for which we think we want to embark upon for further research and development and production and use. Now, how can we do that? End quote. Holst reiterated his position, how it aligned with the Bell Report, and that the government should rely heavily on contracting and only perform work that contributes to competence in evaluation. David Bell, however, made clear that in-house R&D should be an objective in itself. Government employees should be given significant and challenging work. Implying proper evaluation required a more hands-on role. In this view, the context necessary for evaluating the contribution of others is only available to those contributing to the research and development themselves. While there were disagreements about the extent of government involvement in research and development, Almost all agreed that contractors bid away skilled government staff with higher salaries. A common complaint was that government couldn't compensate high-skilled individuals nearly as much as they were worth to industry. However, those just coming out of college in the lower grades 
got better pay and opportunity in the government's service. By 1962, even the lower grades were being paid higher in industry than in government. They could face the prospect of increasing wage disparity with the progress of their career. For example, an entry-level employee with a bachelor's degree could make about $6,000 in government or about $7,000 in industry, a healthy 15% premium. By the time you get to the top levels, the super grades, industry paid more than double the government salary. The disparity was particularly large for employees negotiating contracts. Government negotiators were paid just one-third the amount and had only one-third the experience of their counterparts in industry. The disparity in pay allowed industry to raid talent from the government. Industry and engineers were, after all, scarce resources, perhaps representing one-quarter to one-half of the percent of the population. In 1957, the separation rate of Navy scientists and engineers reached 29%. Nearly the whole organization could turn over in just a few years' time. An Air Force study found that 70% of their separations cited compensation as the primary factor. Armin Alchin and Kenneth Arrod agreed that inflexibility in government salaries caused an artificial shortage of scientists and engineers. They concluded, quote, the government should not hesitate to bid high for research personnel, end quote. With the passing of the Federal Salary Reform Act of 1962, Congress agreed to have government salaries catch up to industry over a three-year period. President Kennedy called it, quote, the most important federal employee pay legislation in 40 years, end quote, with the first declaration that federal salaries must be comparable to those in private industry. Despite the increases in compensation, defense in-house facilities continued to decline. As the Bell Report pointed out, compensation is not the only factor influencing an organization's ability to attract and retain talent. Professional recognition also weighs highly for many scientists and engineers. The Navy, for example, took special care to provide their employees the opportunity to openly publish the results of their work and participate in professional meetings. The trend followed Admiral Rickover's declassification of about a dozen handbooks on nuclear reactor technology, which gained widespread notoriety. Admiral Frederick Firth remarked how, quote, To be recognized as an outstanding individual in his discrete area of science, this is more important to a scientist than the compensation in dollars. And this is why the military service, and I am speaking about the Navy, has been able to retain the services of a number of our outstanding people, end quote. Achieving recognition while in government service, however, required performing more challenging work than the task of contract evaluation alone. DDR&E Harold Brown explained how, in 1965, McNamara's efforts to improve in-house laboratories were limited to recommendations and studies, rather than experimentation and development. The difference was reflected in how much funding was made available to in-house R&D efforts. In 1966, the Air Force allocated $13 million to its laboratories and $30 million to its in-house portion of defense research sciences. Another $331 million went to development and test facilities, which outsourced a significant amount of its funds. Even including that amount, the total effort in-house represented just 10% of the Air Force's $3.2 billion appropriation. By contrast, Navy installations received 43% of R&D funding in 1966, and real spending remained about constant over the next five years. Of $784 million kept in-house in fiscal year 1970, the Navy only contracted out $165 million in support of on-station work. While the Navy made significant portion of funding available for in-house development efforts, 
government staff did not have significant authority to accomplish the work they found important. The proportion of level of effort programs that work towards broad or unspecified projects that could be decided upon at the operational level declined over the 1960s. Assistant Secretary of the Navy for R&D, Dr. Robert Frosch, defended the small 10 million request for independent exploratory development. Quote, the purpose of laboratory independent exploratory development program is to provide funds to the laboratory technical directors to capitalize rapidly on ideas generated by their staffs. The existence of this program thus allows them to exploit in-house capabilities and to explore the feasibility of ideas without the necessity of competing for funds with weapon systems under development. In addition, the program makes more attractive to the creative scientist or engineer the atmosphere of the in-house laboratory, since he can initiate the work on new ideas without the time-consuming effort required by normal budget processes. To continue to be supported by the technical director, however, he must compete with other in-house generated proposals." End quote. Similarly, Army staff often disagreed with OSD priorities and instead wanted to expand funding to its level of effort programs. The 1974 AMARC and 1975 NMARC reports from the Army and the Navy both recognized the importance of funding organizations and staffs. The budget process, however, was transformed by the planning programming budgeting system, which required justification by program starting three years in advance of the appropriation. Any in-house organization performing R&D then has to enter a long process of review before funding can be made available. The in-house staff can only stay around as long as they can sell their services to the higher level. The program budget is therefore the most important motivating force behind government managers. Programs determine what work can be performed, when it will be performed, and how it will be evaluated. These parameters are decided upon by outsiders to the organization whose expertise is usually not in the particular area of research and development or procurement. Admiral Rickover explained, quote, That is why so many talented people at the operational level are leaving the Department of Defense. They have experienced too much of the inward fury of sincere and capable men thwarted by powerful little bureaucrats, end quote. Another observer wrote how, quote, young people see that the project and procurement officers live in a fishbowl environment, are subject to outside intervention, and become targets for criticism, end quote. While the fishbowl effects deterred many talented individuals, it was precisely the intent of the program budget written into Title IV of the National Security Act Amendment of 1949. It sought to rein in the uncoordinated programs of in-house facilities, whose chiefs could decide upon program objectives and methods of evaluation. The Navy viewed such changes in the budget structure as a threat to diminish the autonomy of its bureaus. While the Navy successfully resisted the program budget in the 1950s, it became overwhelmed in the 1960s after the implementation of the PBB system. Perhaps the most pernicious effect of the program budget is the effect on organizational culture. Aaron Woldovsky described the program budget as a contract between policymaker and line manager. Rather than a relational contract which assigns significant discretion to the one performing the work, the program budget process locks in a list of directives of what can and cannot be done. It presumes that the program choice can be considered apart from the structure of organizations and incentives in which it is done. The rigidity of program objectives controlled by outsiders disempowers even the most highly skilled and trustworthy individuals, whether they work in government or for it as a contractor. Pierre Spray testified to Congress in 1971, quote, 
I have found many, many people who were affected by the knowledge that the weapons they are working on were unreliable, were unlikely to prove very effective in combat, or at least dangerous, and by the general impression that these people had that they were not able to do the best possible job in their particular defense mission." End quote. The recognition of errors, however, might harm one's career because it indicates a sort of failure. The organization's funding is completely tied to the specified program. Its survival depends on suppressing information about errors rather than making them visible and correctable. Quote, Budgeting by programs, precisely because money flows to objectives, makes it difficult to abandon objectives without abandoning simultaneously the organizations that get its money from them. End quote. In this way, the people that perform the work regularly see missed opportunities for improving the common security, for demonstrating their technical skills, and for earning the esteem of their peers. Leadership instead demands quick fixes and low-balled figures. The lasting impact, as the Volcker Commission report later found in 2003, is that the best leave too early, and the worst stay too long. Thanks for listening to this conclusion of an acquisition talk series called Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition, 1945-1975. to For more information, including the full text of this series, please see acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again.